0: Pretty sweet being in this uh, big old room. I think it'll give you some idea what's in store if uh, the Lord provides the resources to build a larger worship center. Um, something we've been talking about for some time and people have been given toward. We don't have some sort of special capital funds campaign with a thermometer. You know, it's on the wall. It shows how much it's increasing. We don't intend to have that either. Um... We don't want it to become the thing, but it is something, and um, we are nearing the resources for phase one of a larger worship center, and um, Brad Cardwell sent out an email this week. If you hadn't gotten that, then you need to speak with Brad or one of the elders, and we'll get you connected with it, or Rhonda, and um, he kind of introduced the notion, they got this economic stimulus, I don't know what you call it, economy-stimulating money that's coming. You know, how cool would it be if the kingdom people said, you know, I appreciate the economy. I can see it. I can touch it. I can feel the impacts of it. But the kingdom is more real to me than the economy. I think I'll be participating in a kingdom stimulating event. And um, given that toward that building, we'd knock that building out and be worshiping in it quick. So that's money you didn't plan on. Maybe You may not have liked the fact that I introduced the idea, oh, man, if I had just plugged my ears or skipped that Sunday. But, man, we're just not living for the economy, not kingdom people. That's just not what we're about. Turn to the book of First uh, Peter, if you would. give you a page number here. If you've got an ESV Bible, it's on page 1016 that I'd like you to go to. Chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to begin with prayer and pray for clarity and pray for uh, attentiveness on the part of His people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, what an awesome privilege it is to climb into Your Word today. Lord, I thank You in advance that... Um, this is going to be a head scratcher. It's going to require your people to chew on something and gnaw on something and talk about something and engage something to get it. Lord, for the measure that you've given me to expose it, I pray for clarity. Thank you for encouragement from a brother to press on, even when it may be confusing. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified as people worship this morning, not as consumers, but as worshipers. Engage the truth and enjoy the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I had a barn meeting with Brad Cardwell last night. Uh, Brad and I get together periodically, meet in this barn and talk about things, and it's usually proactive. We're talking, walking together. Sometimes it's reactive. Last night it was reactive. He had to talk me down off the ledge and uh, the ledge was this realization that there's going to be, I'm kind of thankful that it's dark in here because then I can't see the deer in the headlights looks that, or the thousand-yard stare that I might get when we engage these truths this morning. Brad encouraged me to expose the passage and to trust that God in time would give clarity to what you're going to hear this morning. The place that we're going in the book of John in these next few weeks is uh, really a sea of red. <laughs> it's probably going to be months we're just going to be swimming in red, just Jesus talking, in his last few hours before the cross. And I'm imagining what it must have been like for the disciples as they're hearing these things, and he even told them, he said, it'll be okay when I go, because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come, and he'll help you not only recall these things, but he'll help you sort them out. So that's what I'm praying for today, is that uh, the Holy Spirit will help sort out some of what you're going to hear today. What I'd like to do first is Read the passage here in First Peter, chapter three, verse 18. Just the first two-thirds of it is where we're going to be this morning, at least for the majority of it, but I want to give you some references of some other passages you can have at the ready. Three primary passages we're going to be in this morning. There'll be others, but three primary. I want to give you so you can kind of put a bookmark in them, or a finger. If you've got more than one finger, you can put one in each of these spots. First Peter 3:18, Colossians chapter 1 in Ephesians chapter 1. 1 Peter 3.18 is our launching pad this morning. The passage reads, for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This letter written by Peter is written to exiled believers all over the the diaspora is what is called the dispersion. If you look back on the page before, or a couple pages before, at the beginning of the book of 1 Peter, it says who it's written from and who it's written to. It's written to the elect exiles all over the Roman Empire. It calls them the dispersion. Because through persecution or just through the, the uh, evangelism of the church, the church just went poof all over the Roman Empire. And Peter is writing to them. And this book deals with all sorts of things that have to do with the journey of faith. He deals with sort of a house rules like we looked at these last few weeks in Ephesians of husband and wife sort of relationships. He deals with just kind of life as a believer, what that's to look like. He deals with perspective issues whenever you deal with suffering. And unfortunately, despite what is the common message in many pulpits and on many television, televangelist sort of messages, I'm not saying all, but in spite of what's in many of those contexts, I see no mention of fun. I see no mention of flowery beds of ease. I see no mention of riches. No mention of fame and health and wealth. But I see lots of mentions of suffering. And in fact, for such a small book, it's mentioned 15 times: suffering. In this passage where it begins, "For Christ, the four points us back to before. It points a few verses in front. Let me go back, but they go there. Four points back to verse 14, "But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you believers who are dispersed all over the Roman Empire, you will be blessed." Even if you suffer, be ready to give an account for the hope within and to give that with gentleness and respect. And here's the encouragement to suffer well because the next word after Christ is also. Because Christ also suffered. You're not alone in whatever sufferings you face, for our Christ suffered as well. But where we're going to focus this morning is where this verse goes next. Peter, in orienting believers to their attitude in suffering, he takes them to Christ's purpose in suffering. He suffered, it's right there in the passage, for sins. Now, not his, mind you. If you know the gospel story, you know that he didn't have any sin. He didn't suffer for his own sins, but the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. That's you and me if we're believing on Christ. He suffered once for the sins of those who believe to the end on Christ. And this death, this death for sins, this suffering actually accomplished something. It wasn't like some dude stepping into a marketplace with a bomb on his chest and an ignition in his hand and blowing himself up for nothing. His death accomplished something dying for sins if it didn't accomplish anything would be quite a waste but this death this suffering for sin wasn't just punishment it actually achieved something there's an important result and it's found in the rest of the verse first i want to introduce you to the word that That's one of my favorite words in the Bible, just a little four-letter word, that. It seems insignificant. We might read right past it, but in the original language, the word is henna. Now, before anybody tunes out to the henna, let me tune you in to the importance of the word henna. When I began to study Greek, I found that the, the word henna is important because it's often associated with what's called a clause, and it's a henna clause. And the henna clause matters. The henna clause is not just some heady academic thing that is just people talk about at seminary. It's something that invades your dinner table. It's something that invades your cubicle. It invades Thursday. And here's why. Because what's in a kid that makes a kid say, Why, Daddy? Why do the clouds sit in the sky? Mommy, why does it rain? Mommy, why do we park on a driveway and drive in a parkway mommy why is it that when you butter a piece of bread it's going to fall butter side down we're built with whys and especially as kids but we just kind of get numb to those over time but they're still there and for some of us they're much more pronounced and i must tell you that their whys are still in me and i love seeing of that i love seeing a henna clause because it tells me why The marker for this word, this word henna in a henna clause, is the word that. It's also translated so that. It's also translated in order that, depending on the version that you use. I like in order that. It could be used interchangeably. It's the same word. I like in order that because it slows me up a little bit. It makes me, as I'm reading through a passage, go, okay, there's an answer to a why here. And the whys that are built in me are answered here, so I want to slow down and engage this why. So in this passage, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous died for the unrighteous, we're going to use all three of them, that, so that, in order that, He, being Christ, might bring us to God. Now before I continue, I want to define who God is. I want to make no assumptions that you understand who God is because there's the potential to read this passage and see Christ as separate from God. Christ is bringing us to someone else. A part of that might be true because Jesus tells he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So there's the potential to read that passage and say, well, Jesus died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God the Father. But what you've got to realize also is that all things are reconciled in Christ. Colossians chapter 1. All things are reconciled in him, through him, to him. So him dying for sins isn't just bringing him to the Father. It's bringing it him to himself. And then you also have to appreciate that it's not just Father and Son, but it's also Spirit. For it's through the work of the cross that Jesus told the disciples, this. I mentioned it first this morning, He said, it'll be good that I go. In other words, to the cross, and then to the Father's right hand, because the helper will come in my place. And the helper, he will do a couple things. First of all, he's going to convict the world of its sin. Second of all, he's going to teach you all things. So the cross did a few things that brought us, namely to God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. It seems pretty straightforward. Man, it's a no-brainer. We're going to come at this passage from three different directions in the next few minutes. It's my hope and my prayer that you will see the significance of this passage as we engage it in the next few minutes. The first direction we're going to come at is what I'm going to call the boyhood faith. I can't help but examine my own faith. I'm sure many of you do that. You think about when it began. You think the character of it. You think about how it developed. When I talk to people about their testimony, It's something that's on your heart and on your mind. You're thinking through it. I'm no different. I consider my faith, I believe it began at the age of six. Technically, it began before that when people were sowing into my life. But I'm not even sure that it really officially began at the age of six. But I think it began at the age of six. As I examine my own faith, I'm also examining the faith of my wife, my primary ministry. And I'm considering her, and I'm wanting to bathe her with the Word so that she'll be presentable someday, just like we considered last week. But then I'm also considering the faith of my children. Kids, why do you believe? (laughs) Do you just want to get in the pool? You just want to get baptized just because your friends got their baptism on? Are you loving Christ? I'm examining their faith, and I'm also examining the faith of this people. And I'm also, as you would hope and expect, I'm examining the faith of our Our community. (laughs) We've been given stewardship with this little plot of soil. So I'm examining the faith of this people. And for the most part, at least when I consider myself, and I consider many that I've talked with, if I were asked why this passage spoke to me, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If I were asked why that question spoke to me, it would be because through Christ's death, I'm saved from hell. Yeah. That's most of Greenville. That may be most of you. It's most of my life. Man, I'm saved from hell. As a young child, it wasn't hard for me to imagine fire. I mean, I burnt my hand on the stove. Everybody's done it. Heat. Brimstone. I didn't know what that was, but man, it sounds bad sulfur <laughs> it wasn't hard for for me to imagine what hell would be like agony suffering screaming and then i thought about the parable that i heard lazarus and the rich man that's not lazarus that's called forth from the tomb it's a different lazarus the parable of lazarus and the rich man where the rich man calls for lazarus he calls to abraham can you send lazarus over here to dip the end of his finger in water just to cool my tongue for i'm in anguish in this flame If there's something I could do (laughs) to avoid that, I'm in. Tell me what I got to do. Oh, Jesus is the way? Okay, well, man, I'm so in. So I cast my lot with Christ. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that that was my lot, that fiery place. I knew that's what was in store, and even at the age of six, And I thought that Jesus died for me so I wouldn't have to go to that place. (laughs) That was the substance of my faith. I would have, for most of my Christian journey, enjoyed the reality that I was brought. Just like this passage says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The focus for me for most of my life is that he's brought me from somewhere. And that somewhere is not a good place. I'm going to call this faith, this boyhood faith, I'm going to call it the non-hell program. That's the program that I was on most of my life. Whether that was real faith or not, I don't know. But if being with Christ meant I didn't have to go there, then I'm in. If I had a chance to communicate with all of Greenville in one sitting, or if I had the chance like this morning to communicate with you in one sitting, I've got to ask you the question, are you with Christ just so you won't go to hell? If you're asked the question, why do you want to go to heaven, would your answers be like this? Would they go something like this? Because my parent or my friend is there, and I love them, and I miss them. Would your answer be because there won't be any pain there? And I've experienced such pain here, such darkness. Would it be because there won't be any suffering or sorrow there? Would your answer be because you've read a little bit more, you find that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and you're like, dude, that sounds awesome. A new heavens and a new earth with this big celestial city that's as high as it is long, as it is wide? Man, that sounds cool. With streets of gold, crystal, amethyst, jasper? Man, that's going to be incredible. That's why I'm in. Or as simply as most of us might put it, I will believe on Christ or I want to go to heaven because I don't want to go to hell. If those are the substance of your answers, I've got to ask the next question, where's God in those answers? What does God have to do with any of those ca- answers? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. Is the main emphasis of this passage that by the righteous death of the only true righteous for the unrighteous that we're saved from a terrible destiny? Is that all the gospel does? If that's all it does, it's no surprise to w- to me why people fall away. I'm in. I'm out. I got my policy. I'm saved, me and God, we're square, I'm out the back door. Now the next direction, that's the first direction. The next direction I'm going to call vehicle faith. As I studied, as I I began to teach Bible studies in 1990 with Christy in a Married couples class, as I began to study and then as I began to move into seminary direction, my faith grew from a boyhood faith to what I'm going to call a vehicle faith. I began to be acquainted with the language and the terminology of salvation. And I loved what I was finding. Big word city. You know I like words. And big words, tons of them. And man, I'm all over that. I would have approached this passage differently than this boyhood faith who read Christ died so I won't go to hell. Now my focus would have been instead of Christ just dying so I won't go to hell, it would have been it would have graduated to the method of delivery. It would have graduated from the place of just saying, "Okay, he's delivered me from a terrible fate." to look at how he delivered me. Look at the vehicles Man, those things are awesome. The vehicles behind the word bring, that he might bring us to God. Christ died, the righteous, for the unrighteous. Well, the words got longer, and the discussions got more and more intense. I'm going to introduce to you seven bringers, seven vehicles, in the next few minutes. And some of them are going to be familiar if you've paid attention in this people in the last five years. Because they've been exposed week after week. They've been enjoyed. They've been savored. Here's the first vehicle. Some of these, these, at least these first vehicles, I'm going to consider them as big manly beef eater tire four-wheel drives. These are tough manly Jeff Ott trucks that you need a ladder to climb up in. These are beef eater four-wheel drive vehicles. Here's the first one. Big word, don't be afraid of it because I'm going to tell you what it means. You ought to know what it means substitutionary atonement we considered it about a year and a half ago something like that we had a series of sermons from the book of leviticus it was called the sacrifice series where we began to understand what what christ was actually doing when he went to the cross and in this sacrifice series we considered first substitutionary atonement that big manly four-wheel drive with big mud grip tires We went to the book of Leviticus, and we found this picture of the sacrificial system where something's dying all day long, blood all over the place, fire, things being sublimated up to God, this aroma of sacrifice in God's nostrils, and a smile on big God's face. And what we found in Leviticus is that for a holy God to dwell with unholy man, something's got to (laughs) die. God is that holy and sin is that corrosive. In the book of Hebrews we found that without the shedding of blood there's no remission or lessening of sin. So it's in here we began to be acquainted with this thing called substitutionary atonement. We met this fictional guy that I made up, this guy named Jacob. Jacob was just a normal dude but he was serious about being reconciled with God. So he had big flocks and big herds and every day, man he's picking out a lamb or a bull got to go back to the tabernacle i messed up i raised my voice to my wife or i had an evil thought where's my unblemished lamb he walks off to the tabernacle and his neighbors are going there goes Jacob again and we considered this picture of substitutionary atonement It's Jacob walking to the entrance of the tabernacle taking the bull or the lamb putting his hand on that critter's head and then reaching around and slicing its throat Whoosh! blood spurting everywhere That picture of him putting his hand on that critter's head is the picture of substitutionary atonement. This critter is my substitute, God. This critter's dying in my place. God gave a great blessing, great grace, in giving them this sacrificial system. But boy, it was cumbersome. Ask Jacob. There he goes again. His flocks and herds are dwindling. He's encouraging them, produce, because there's tomorrow. I know I'll be back. But it's there we met that first vehicle, substitutionary atonement. And it's a sweet vehicle because it picks us up and it brings us to God. It picks up an unholy people and it brings us to a holy God. Thank you for substitutionary atonement. That Christ became our substitute. It's like we've placed our hand on his head and he handed us the knife and said, Slit it! I'll become your substitute. We met substitutionary tone. Man, we sung. We proclaimed. We worshiped. Then the next four-wheel drive we met was propitiation. I'm calling these manly off-road vehicle four-wheel drives because they achieve something that no little old Civic can do. If you got a Civic, don't, I'm not picking on you. You just know that Jeff Ott's car could run right over you. That's what these are. The first car was a substitutionary atonement. It's a manly, beef-eating four-wheel drive. Here's another one. The four-wheel drive of propitiation. Propitiation is not just a big word that someone made up. It's not this academic word either. It's a word in our Bible. Have you ever wondered why the consequences of eating a piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were death? Doesn't that seem a little extreme? It's just a piece of fruit. It's just a bite. The reason it's not extreme is because that's a tutor on God's extreme holiness and on our extreme sinfulness. It tells us just how holy God is and just how sinful and wicked and how corrosive sin is. So as we consider propitiation, 1 John chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, verse 10, you can jot it down. It says, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In his death, he paid for sins that were due us. He stepped in our way. God, this rightful, holy, just God, is rightfully angry at sinful man. You, insert you. And through the work of the cross, Jesus steps in our place and bears the full weight of what we are do. He absorbs that wrath. That's propitiation. And through that work we are brought to God. That's a sweet vehicle. <laughs> Here's the next one. I'm going to call this a four-wheel drive too. I hadn't really figured out what vehicle it is. But it's four-wheel drive-ish. The next one is peacemaking. The first vehicle, the way God brings us to him, is through the work of substitutionary atonement. When someone dies in our place... And then there's propitiatory work where someone actually bears the wrath that's due us. And the third is peacemaking. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. I told you to kind of have it at the ready. I want you to see this. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. This is an awesome passage of Scripture. And he is before all things. This is speaking of Christ. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remember what I was talking about before, that he's fully God? In him... All the fullness of God dwelled, that in everything he might be preeminent. And through him to rec- Excuse me, let me go back to verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the next four-wheel drive vehicle is that it's by his work that he achieved peace. A vertical piece first between sinful man and a holy God. And it is through that vertical piece that now we have horizontal peace with God's people. Now, the next vehicle, the fourth vehicle, is the vehicle of justification. And this one, this is not a four wheel drive. I'm going to call justification a sleek, fast car like a Shelby Cobra. Justification is bad. We could spend our lives bathing in justification. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this. It says, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's one of the first verses I ever learned from a pack of M&Ms. I love it. But then it goes on and it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So not only were we spared from punishment and death, but we were reckoned. That's a good word. We were imputed with. That's another weird word maybe. Look it up. Be okay with learning new words. Don't be stupid and lazy. New big words are parking spaces for big rich thoughts. And in the work of justification, we were imputed. We were reckoned righteous. There was no righteousness in us. No one's righteous. No, not one. not only were we spared from punishment and death, but we were reckoned righteous by the work of Christ. A little illustration. It's not the best in the world, but it's one that will give you some sense. Imagine, Imagine that you've committed murder. Imagine that you have to go to prison. You sit on death row. And if someone actually comes and takes your place... And you're freed? And then that person walks down the hall that you were supposed to walk down, and he sits in the chair that you were supposed to sit in, and he takes the voltage that was due you? (laughs) That's substitutionary atonement. That's propitiation. That's peacemaking. But then here's justification. Not only are you freed, but now you are reckoned righteous as the one that took your place. Not by anything you did, but by his righteousness. That's a scandal. (laughs) That's a scandal. That's a sleek Shelby Cobra. It's a one-sweet vehicle. Then there's the vehicle of evangelization. Another Asian. Evangelization turned to Ephesians chapter 2. I told you to be in Ephesians or have it, have it handy. It's just a few pages before. This vehicle is what I'm going to consider is like a Learjet. This thing can make some distance. It's like a Concorde, that plane that they apparently don't fly anymore. They had the little nose down on the front that could get somewhere fast. This is evangelization, the vehicle, the next vehicle that brings us to God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This book is written to the Ephesian church that has a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, all believing. And they carry some baggage in the difference between the two. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, you were called uncircumcised. Those guys are the uncircumcised. You were called that by the Jews. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you guys, you uncircumcised, were at that that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He goes on, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And he's broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are brought near by the blood of Christ. This next vehicle that brought us to Christ is this people-gathering work of the cross. Where people are gathered from the four winds, he's bringing people from the far corners, and if you're in a far corner, fellow Gentiles, which we are, you need to be grateful for that vehicle. That vehicle is an incredible blessing. He came and got us, because we couldn't find him. He came and got us by the beautiful feet of one who carried good news, thereby bringing us to God. Two more vehicles. And I'm urging you to hang in there. I'm regretting the way I introduced the sermon this morning, because you may go to the place where, ah, we got to figure this out, it's going to be hard. Tune in. Where we're going in these next few minutes is important here's the next vehicle. I'm going to call this a Honda Element. Remember when the Honda Elements first came out? They're driving down the road, and you're going, man, what is that? That's some sort of service vehicle that people use around their their, uh, work facility? That thing is ugly, boy. But then before long, it kind of started getting cool. I don't know why I don't have one, and I probably wouldn't, but they kind of started looking cool, kind of like the Mini Cooper. When I first saw them, those things are ugly, but then after a while, man, I like those. And that's the next Asian that I'm going to call election. This next vehicle that brings us to God. Right there in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, there it is. If you don't like it, then you need to rip that page out of your Bible. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. i got to confess to you that that Honda element was ugly at first. When I was preaching through John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 44, it's incredible what this passage says, what I had to reckon with. It says, no one can come to me, this is Christ speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw is the word drag in the original language. No one can come to me unless the Father drags him. And in verse 65, it says, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And then apparently a bunch of people thought, ooh, that's an ugly Honda element. Because in the next verse it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Ooh, I don't like that, Sean. I don't like that vehicle. I, that was a Honda element at first. I hated the looks of it. But the more and more I study it, I want one. I love that. That used to be a peripheral thing for Crosspoint Fellowship. It's not peripheral anymore because it is the means by which we are brought to God. If he didn't come get us first, we couldn't find him on our own. If he didn't save us through and through, I don't have a kernel of something in me that's not in the next guy. Some kernel of goodness that just saw Christ and said, oh, he's beautiful. He had to awaken love within me. So I'm thankful for this ugly Honda element because it's not ugly anymore. It's a beauty. I love that vehicle. Now there's a vehicle that most of you can identify with, the last vehicle. So hang in there. This is the vehicle of glorification. This vehicle, when I consider that by the work of Christ, suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that these vehicles that I've introduced, this vehicle of substitutionary atonement, these off-road four-wheel drive, mud-gripping, rock-climbing rides, propitiation, peacemaking, and then that Shelby Cobra, man, is fast and furious of justification. And then that Lear Jet that goes all over the world and gathers, the, gathers those that are scattered abroad, those lost sheep. And then I consider election, and then here is glorification. Since we're reckoned righteous by the work of Christ, we'll share in His reward. And that reward being presence together in heaven for eternity. This is where most of us can identify. Even if you don't know any of the other ownments, Are Asians, you may not give it this term, glorification, but I bet this is where you can identify with what heaven's going to be like. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Have you ever wept? Have you ever been broken hearted? Have you ever hurt? Have you ever lost somebody? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. Have you ever hurt? For the former things have passed away. What car is this? I'm going to call this the concept car. We hadn't seen it yet, we've just seen glimpses of it. And it looks awesome, and it sounds sweet. I can't wait till that thing comes out. That's a sweet vehicle that I can visualize. These are incredible vehicles. These off road vehicles. This Shelby Cobra. This Lear jet that goes all over the world. This concept car. These are pretty incredible vehicles. And in the last four years, I hope you've heard a lot of them. I hope you've gotten to know these rides through the teaching and preaching of the Word. And let me tell you something. I cherish these vehicles, these bringers, these things behind that word bring. But here's what 1 Peter chapter 3.18 teaches me that you've got to get today. It teaches me that it's possible for me to teach it and preach it. It's possible for Scott to write songs about it. It's possible for you as shepherds in home to shepherd your children and your family talking about these things, these wonderful realities of the gospel, these sweet, cool, awesome vehicles. It's possible to enjoy them, yet never go where they're designed to lead us. We can deify the Asians in the omen. We can worship the things that are vehicles to get us to God. It's possible to love the things about God and love the things that God has done, all the omens and the Asians, and not love God at all. Do you hear me? We could be so taken with substitutionary atonement that we actually feel the knife in our hands and the soft hair of Christ kneeling before us, that we're taken with substitutionary atonement, that we can visualize it. We can hear the bleat of the lamb as he bumps against our leg with Jacob. It's possible to be so taken with substitutionary atonement that we feel the knife and the soft hair as he's in our place. It's possible we can flinch As we consider the work of propitiation, where he bears wrath in our place as that flagrum, those fingers that have little pieces of glass tied in them, slap against his back and rip away flesh. It's possible to feel that sting and to hear that flagrum. It's possible that we can be enthralled with the peace that we have with God and the scandal that we're imputed with the righteousness that we don't rate We can be captivated with the people gathering work of the cross. And we can even spend our lives in the service of the gathering work. And we can think and dwell and write songs about these things, about what he's done. And we can all the while imagine the concept car that's in store. And we can do all those things and yet not love God at all. See, while this death of the one true innocent, this righteous dying for the unrighteous accomplished much, all those vehicles that you see, it was not the end. The vehicles take us somewhere. The rescue from hell, which I'm thankful for still. The vehicles too, which I marvel at. And I hope we're saturated in the teaching and preaching of the Word here. Those were for a purpose. That, so that, in order that, He might bring us to God. It seems simple. These things are bringers. These things are obstacle clearers. To take us to the true treasure, which is not the attainment of knowledge of those things. The true treasure is God. The true treasure is where they take you. All these things, these vehicles that I talked about, these are like little diamond facets that you consider and you marvel at. You look at it under the microscope. But you've got to step away and enjoy the beauty of the diamond. These things are like trees, wonderful trees that are planted in a majestic forest of God's glory. These things are like clouds in a beautiful sky, red, fiery sunset of God's glory. These things, these awesome vehicles, which I cherish, are like rocks that we pick up. Beautiful rocks. Sapphire, agate, topaz, amethyst, granite, quartz. We're picking these rocks up and we're looking at them, but then we've got to stand back and realize these rocks are sitting in the Grand Canyon of God's manifold glory. And we can handle the rocks and think that we're enjoying the canyon. They're just vehicles... To bring us to God. Loving these things more than we love God would be like loving your car more than you love where it could take you. It would be like loading up the family and going to the Alps. But the flight was so sweet that you don't want to get off the plane. Wouldn't that flight? It wasn't bumpy at all. And those peanuts, it was awesome. The two God is the Alps. This may seem like a trivial thing, a small nuance, but I want to present it to you another way. I want you to imagine the love that a child has for its parents. If you ask a child, son, daughter, kid, Johnny, why do you love mommy? He's probably going to say things like, well, Mommy does some wonderful things for me. There's some great vehicles for fellowship with Mommy. She cooks for me. She reads to me. And man, what a reader. She tells me stories. She scratches my back at bedtime. Mommy's awesome. Now, if you're paying attention you know that those are no real descriptors of the love that you hope it grows into. You hope that as a teenager and as a young man or young lady, the love for mommy grows from, she scratches my back to Mom's awesome. I love mom just for who she is, not for what she's done for me only. While I'm thankful for the sweet things that she does for me, that thankfulness, the things she does for me is a handmaid and a servant to the master of relationship with mommy. Now that's relationship. And that's what the relationship with God, that's what this passage is telling us. Think about the love of a husband for his wife. Husband's going to write wife a love note. Some of you are thinking, huh? Some wives are going, yeah, that'd be awesome. And he begins it with, honey, I love you because... How he answers that question will have a lot to do with whether it's responded to, whether it's reciprocated. If he says, you know, I love my wife. Honey, I love you so much because you bathe the kids, because you're easy on the eyes. Hopefully you can be a little stronger than that. Because you bathe the kids, you're easy on the eyes, because you wash the clothes, because you feed the dog, because you make the bed, because you clean the toilets, because you cook my favorite foods, and you leave it at that? Wives, how's that going to make you feel? Make you feel like a maid. Make you feel like a servant, like a bellboy. I hope love matures beyond that. To a husband saying, honey, I love you for who you are. While I'm thankful for all these sweet things that you do for me, I love you just because you're you. Now that's rich love. If we expect and hope that human love should grow beyond the point of just loving you for what you get out of it, why shouldn't we hope that love Godward grows that way? Should love toward God be less than love toward mommy? It should be more, it should be deeper. It should be richer. This question, this verse, is no insignificant verse. This is no nuance. This may be the difference between hearing, I never knew you, or saying, Come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's that critical. It's no nuance. Here's a question for you. I'm reading a book right now by John Piper. It's called God is the Gospel. He asked a question in there that was one of the best questions I've heard, I think, in my life. And here's Ben's version of that question. If in heaven, this will be so diagnostic for you. If, if you've hung in there up to this point, this question will help you understand this whole sermon. Talk about it as a family. If in heaven you're able to enjoy the fellowship of friends and family who've gone on before you, if you're able to eat the best food you've ever eaten, three forks all day long, right? Good grub. If the most incredible landscapes you've ever seen surround you, it's like you cannot look in a place that's not beautiful and wonderful and incredible, if the weather is perfect every day, like Southern California. <laughs> are you kidding me? How do those jokers get away with living there? Beautiful weather, all day long. Perfect breeze. Just the right temperature. If heaven, if in heaven you hear the most wonderful sounds you've ever heard all day long, the most beautiful birds you've ever heard sing, the most beautiful songs you've ever heard sung, if the most perfect experiences you've ever experienced are all you feel and experience would you be content and satisfied if you got there and found out Christ isn't there <laughs> what i need to scratch my head over that scratch you can scratch it's okay If all the most perfect, incredible experiences that I've ever experienced are there in heaven, but I get there and I find out all the loved ones that I've ever wanted to be with all my whole life, the best food I've ever eaten, every best experience, and I get there and Jesus isn't here. Would you be satisfied? Could you be content? Here's something for you to consider as you gnaw on that question. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ wasn't there won't be there. People who would be content in heaven if Christ wasn't there won't be there. There's a preacher in the 1800s, a guy named J.C. Ryle who's the bishop of the Anglican Church. In 1877, he preached from Colossians chapter 3, Christ is all and in all. And here's what he said about this specific thing. Listen. He said, but alas, I I would like to put this in the newspaper and put my name on it. I couldn't because J.C. Ryle said it. I put it after it. Ben said that J.C. Ryle said But alas, how little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. While they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ, you give Christ no honor here. That sound familiar? Most of Greenville professes faith in Christ to have had some sort of experience, yet they thumb their nose at the, cur- at the church that Christ came and died for. 3% to 5% of Greenville is engaged in a local body. Does that blow your mind? I cannot tell you how often I hear people say, man, that's son of God, my old cousin, he's living in sin, but at least he's saved. At least he's saved. But he has no affection for what Christ has affection for? You have no communion with him. You give Christ no honor here. You do not love him, is what J.C. says. He says, alas... I like that ancient, old-timey words. Alas, what could you do in heaven? (laughs) He says, it would be no place for you. Its joys would be no joys for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments would be a weariness and a burden on your heart. Oh, repent and change before it be too late. Greenville. Those who are on the non-health track. That's why I said, I don't know if that was faith at all. I don't know what that was. Here's the next question. It's a lot like the first one. If in heaven you have perfect, this is for the real students among you, which we have a lot of, man. I love that. People gnawing on things. People engaging these vehicles and loving them with me. I love that. But if you go to heaven and you have perfect understanding of substitutionary atonement, you see it in all its glory. You get all your questions answered. You see clearly propitiation, justification. You can see every detail of the peacemaking work of the cross. You see his plan in evangelizing the nations. And as you sit in heaven, you're enjoying the intricate details of glorification and how marvelous glorification is, that concept card. If you've got perfect knowledge of all the Asians and all the Ownments, but if you find out the Lord's not there, would you be satisfied? (laughs) Could you be content? People who would be content musing on the Asians and the Ownments in heaven if Christ wasn't there won't be there. They may know the lingo. They may know the Asians and the ownments, but if they don't know the God of the Asians and the ownments, they won't be there. The worshipers, the true worshipers, with all the best food, with all the best experiences, with all those sweet friends and family that we've cherished all the years over the years, being there with us in heaven, with all knowledge and all understanding, with perfect weather and perfect breeze, The true worshipers with all those things in heaven, which I'm going to call the trappings of God. The true worshiper, if they have all those things and they get there and they find out Christ isn't there, the true treasure, i am out of here. Where is he? (laughs) You can have three forks. Ecclesiastes says, who can eat or find enjoyment without God? You can have three forks. You can have these experiences. You can have these incredible sounds. You can even have my family members that have gone on before me that I would love to see. If Christ isn't there, I pass. That ought to be our answer. It just won't do. (laughs) Where is He? In place of suffering? I'd rather suffer and be with Christ than be on flowery beds of ease and be without Him. That's the point of this sermon. I'd rather be suffering with Christ than in pure bliss without Him. Our song as the people of God should be, He's my treasure. Not what He does for me. He's my joy. He's My portion. I pant for him like a deer pants for water. That's the song of the people of God. I'm going to leave in the message with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had the privilege of seeing thousands of people profess faith in Christ. Thousands. anybody anybody had that privilege? Not me. I'd love to see it. But then he had the task of shepherding them for years after that, and he saw a significant back door where people came in the front door and out the back door. For them, maybe it was about the trappings. But here's what he writes. It says, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. The enjoyment of God. Not the trappings. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. (laughs) They are but shadows, and God is the substance. These things, as sweet and as special as they are, they are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, and God is the ocean. (laughs) Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life, this little snapshot of things where we breathe for a while, this thing called life, only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good, the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life, like economy, (laughs) economy schmonomy, Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness, and that is God? (sighs) Let me pray. God, I pray about our motives. Lord, I pray that you will be about the work of shining the light of the Word into our lives so that we can examine ourselves, so that we can see if we are in it just for the trappings or if we truly love you. Lord, I pray that for me right now in the presence of this people. Lord, open my eyes if I'm in it for the trappings of safety, comfort, provision, the sting of death being gone, even heaven, if I'm in it for those things, minus you, Lord, arrest me. Arrest me first with that realization and then inject me, overwhelm me, put in me a love for Christ, a love for you that I can't muster, that I can't generate. I pray that for me. I pray that for Christy McGraw. I pray that for Evan, Luke, and Daniel. I pray that for this people that sit here today. Lord, I pray for a sincerity and urgency and a seriousness about being hard and fast after you and you alone. Lord, we thank you for the trappings. We do. But guard our consumer hearts from loving those things more than we love you. Lord, we can't eat or find enjoyment without you. Arrest us. With a love for you. We are praying this in Christ's perfect, precious, and holy name. Amen. Let's worship in song.